0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Dylan and worship team, for leading us in song this morning. <laughs> if you're new with us, uh, a special welcome to you. Thank you for being here. My name's Dan, and I'm the lead pastor here. So thankful you guys are here with us today. Um, we read the Bible verse by verse here, typically. And uh, we're in the book of Acts right now. And today we get a look at another fascinating passage in this book, one which if you weren't reading verse by verse, you might not pick this verse, this passage to preach on. So kids, this might be one you didn't hear in Sunday school if you're hanging with us today. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Acts 4.32. Please, Acts 4.32. As you're doing that, let me kind of set the context for us. Um, the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is a book of the Bible that describes the very first years of the Christian movement right after Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And just before Jesus uh, left earth and he physically rose up into heaven, he gathered his small group of followers on a hill in the countryside and he told them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so essentially Jesus told his followers that I'm gonna send God the Holy Spirit to you when I leave. And when that happens, you are gonna be my hands and feet to the earth. You're gonna take care of one another. You're gonna love one another uh, the same way that I have loved you. You're gonna love your enemies. And you're gonna tell the world that God has come for them, for them that, that, that he died on a cross to take away their sin, that he, that he rose from the dead three days later, and, and that whoever believes this, whoever stops believing uh, the, the, the lies of Satan and the lies of this world and instead trusts in Jesus and in his message and in his salvation— They will be eternally saved from sin and from death and hell and Satan forever, if you trust in the Lord. And Jesus says, you're going to start by doing all of this in Jerusalem. That's what he's told them. This is the capital of the Jews. He said, you're going to start in Jerusalem. And so that's what these Christians did. Jesus did send God the Holy Spirit to them on this day that we call Pentecost. And when that happened, God started to do incredible things among the Christians in the church as a whole in Jerusalem. And this morning, we want to just keep reading through Acts. And we're going to read about what happened among these Christians in Jerusalem. And we want to see how that applies to our lives as individuals and how that applies to our life as a church family here at Cedar Home. So before we read today's passage, let's ask God to continue to help us as we open his word. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the great privilege uh, it is to gather together this morning to love one another, to to pray together, and to sing songs of worship to you, and to bring our offerings to you, and to read your Word and to hear the gospel preached. Uh, you tell us, Lord, in Second Timothy three that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we just humbly ask that you would use your word in our lives to do this today among us. Uh, Holy Spirit, please teach us what we need to be taught. Teach our hearts. Reprove us where we need to be reproved. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Train us up in your righteousness. Please equip us for every good work that you have prepared for us in advance to do. And as we dive into this passage, Lord, we, uh, we, we pray that you would guard us from Satan and any demonic powers, that you would guard our hearts, uh, guard our minds, and please glorify your name in this place now. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, Acts 4:32. I want to read through chapter 5 verse 11. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, so let's begin here by kind of stepping back and and just standing in awe for a second of the breathtaking ways that God was blessing the Christians in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit indwelt these Christians. Uh, He was filling them with this incredible love, his love for the Lord, and this love for the Lord was expressed through their remarkable love for one another. And the Holy Spirit, we read, bonded their hearts. Uh, their hearts, their lives were, were united together so that they were in harmony with one another. And the Holy Spirit filled their hearts with, with compassion. With the, you know, when you read the Gospels, you read about Jesus had compassion on them. Well, this is the same compassion of Jesus that they had on one another. And so that they shared everything they had with one another. And, and they even sold their earthly treasures, it says, in order to provide for the needs of the poor Christians among them. And so this community of Christians was, was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was recognized by outsiders, by its selflessness and by its sacrificial love. And we read here that God's grace was on these believers richly. Okay, now, now think about this. These Christians were to a certain degree embodying the holiness of God. They were displaying the holiness of God to the non-Christians around them. Remember, holiness means set apart, in your own category, totally distinct. That's what we see in this early church community here. Even though they they did not physically separate themselves from the world, they were essentially a city within a city, This Christian community was a holy city within the larger city of Jerusalem. And their values and their their, uh, their lifestyles were largely countercultural. This sort of uh, we have to understand, especially I mean, this this sort of radical self-sacrificing lifestyle is is remarkable today. But in the Roman Empire, we have to understand that compassion, servility, humility was seen as a weakness. This was not something to be esteemed. This was not the way the culture worked. This was totally radical. And um, what we see is that their common life together was was driven by their common faith in Jesus' death and in his real resurrection. And and it was just undeniable that there was something different, really different about these Christians. And this moment that we read about here in Acts 4, 32 to 35 was especially... A holy, beautiful, set-apart moment in the history of God's people. And in verses 36 to 37, Luke points out one man who was an uh, an extra-special encouragement to the church. And his name was Joseph. He was from the tribe of Levi. He he grew up in Cyprus, which is an island country in the Mediterranean Sea. And Barnabas would... Uh, or Joseph would prove to be such a servant and a helper to the church that they would name him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And we'll we'll continue to read about Barnabas through the rest of the book of Acts because he was so central to the church at that time. But it, it says here in verse 37 that God had blessed Barnabas with some wealth. Barnabas had owned a field which he wanted to sell and blessed the church with the proceeds. And so by his own choice, Barnabas sold that field. He brought the money to the leaders of the church and he laid it at their feet. And this was, this was a beautiful sacrifice. So we kind of see in an abstract way in verses 32 to 35 what this looked like is you know, talking about um, them sharing life together, selling their proceeds. And then Barnabas is an illustration, one specific illustration of what that looked like. This was an offering that Barnabas gave to the church to worship Jesus and to help Jesus' people. And this was the sort of sacrificial love that the Christians in Jerusalem were known for. It It was really amazing, it was a beautiful thing. Now, whenever Satan sees a beautiful thing that God is doing in the lives of people on Earth, Satan wants to destroy it, okay? Satan, we must know Satan is a, was a created being, a fallen angel, he is not co-equal with God. God has all power over Satan, okay? But Satan is against God, and he's against everything that God is doing in the world, and Satan knows that his destiny is sealed, okay? Satan already knows that one day in the future when Jesus returns to earth, Jesus is going to throw him into the lake of fire for eternity. And so what Satan has done throughout all of human history and what he is still doing to this day is trying to ruin the name of the Lord on earth. Satan wants to stop the flourishing of Jesus' church. And he wants to, not just, especially Jesus' church has a target on it, but he really wants to ruin the lives of everybody. He wants to prevent people from being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. He wants to prevent people from having an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. And he wants to take as many people with him as possible to hell and eventually to this lake of fire. And he's very smart, This is what we read in the Bible. That he attacks individuals and families, marriages, groups of people by tempting them, with sin, which he promises them is gonna be really great and taste good, but which is a dangerous, sharp fish hook that's gonna lead them to death, okay? Satan attacks individuals and families and groups of people in the church by, by lying to them, by spreading lies among them, by oppressing them with demonic power, and by trying to divide them, divide, divide, deceive divide, and conquer. That's what Satan wants to do to you, to me, to our church, and to the individuals and families in our community. Deceive, divide, and conquer. And so when Satan saw the beautiful things that the Holy Spirit was doing in and through the Christians in Jerusalem, he hated it. He wanted to destroy it. He wanted to deceive, destroy, divide, and conquer, okay? And He saw the supernatural love of Jesus. He saw the unity of the Holy Spirit displayed in the lives of these Christians. And that was a powerful wake-up call to Satan that God was doing a new thing on earth in a powerful new way, okay? With, With resurrection life, resurrection power, Jesus was redeeming everything that had been lost to sin and Satan at the fall. And seeing this, Satan wanted to penetrate, penetrate that group of Jerusalem Christians to destroy the church from the inside out. And so in Acts 5.1, we read that a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, to really understand what's going on here, we have to understand this phrase, kept back which in Greek means more than that. It means to embezzle or to pilfer. And so Ananias and his wife decided to sell one of their properties and to bring the proceeds to the apostles' feet. However, unlike Barnabas, you see he's contrasting Barnabas with them. Barnabas offered it rightly. They offered it wrongly. Unlike Barnabas, this couple decide first to set aside some of the money for themselves, but they wanted it to appear like they were giving all of the proceeds of their property to the church. And when they laid this money at the feet of the apostles, Peter somehow knew that they were lying. And verse three says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So in plotting to deceive the church, Ananias and Sapphira, either knowingly or unknowingly, opened themselves up to Satan to be used by him to attack God's church. And whether Ananias and Sapphira Sapphira were actually Christians, we don't know. But it's clear that their sin against the church was planned. It was premeditated. It was deceitful. And Satan was using it... uh, to attempt to ruin the beautiful things that God was doing among the Christians in Jerusalem. and In verse four, Peter asks Ananias, while it remained unsold, did not it remain your own? So in other words, Peter is affirming that nobody forced Ananias to sell his land, okay? Ananias did not have to sell his land for the sake of the church. And then Peter asks Ananias, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So here Peter's affirming that nobody forced Ananias to give the proceeds of the property to the church. The beauty of sacrificial giving that the Lord desires is not that you do it because someone forces you to do it, because you do it out of guilt. Instead, a beautiful offering is one in which you cheerfully choose to present a sacrificial offering to God because you love him and because you're thankful for what he's done for you eternally. And then Peter asks Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And so here Peter's affirming that Ananias Ananias was not in trouble here uh, for giving only part of the proceeds to the church. That's not why he's in trouble. He's in trouble for lying to the church by claiming that he was giving all the proceeds to the church. And then Peter pinpoints, to Ananias, the horrible reality of what he's done, Peter tells him, you have not lied to man, but to God. That's a profound statement there. By lying to the church and to its leaders, Ananias was lying to God. This is That doesn't make the leaders of the church or the church God. What it means is that they're intimately connected. This is how intimately present God is with his people. When when a person lies to the church, a person is lying to God. When a a person persecutes God's people, that person is actually persecuting God. That's why uh, when, when Jesus confronts the persecutor Saul in Acts 9, Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, why are you persecuting God by persecuting God's people. So Ananias was guilty of of planning to deceive the church, which was ultimately a plan to deceive God. And in doing so, Ananias and Sapphira were mocking God. They were making light of sin. They were making light of their own sin. They they actually believed they could get away with stealing from God's people. Uh, They were not afraid of the Lord, and of his wrath. And so they pridefully executed their plan in order to attempt to deceive God and his people and they expected to get away with it. But Peter confronts Ananias in his sin and he tells him, you've not lied to man but to God and verses five to six say, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So Ananias' sinful plan was brought to light. A reminder that all our sin will be brought to light, either in this life or when we meet Jesus. And God dropped Ananias to the ground, then and there, and Ananias died. And the young men there immediately wrapped his body in some garments. They carried him outside. They buried him. And we see here a, vi- a powerful illustration, an example, that sin leads to death. Ananias' sin led to his own death, and he was buried before he knew it. And then we read in verses 7 to 8 that after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So when Sapphira comes to Peter here, Peter gives her an opportunity to confess this crime and to tell him the truth. And he asks her, is this really all the money that you got from the sale of your land? And Sapphira lies to Peter straight face and says, yeah, this is it. And verses nine to 11 say, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Peter asked Sapphira, why in the world did you and your husband agree that it would be a good idea to test the Holy Spirit? Did you really think you could get away with mocking God? And then she died, just like her husband, and she was quickly buried. And then verses 5 and 11 both say that, it describes what happened as a result of this. It says that when everybody heard about what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, great fear came upon them. So believers and non-believers who heard about this this incident were sobered they were woken up they were made fearful of the power of the living God and the very thing that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have the fear of the Lord is what the Lord instilled in everybody else by showing everyone what happens to those who do not respect and fear the Lord and take seriously his words and take seriously his holiness The Lord was teaching his people that just because Jesus died to suffer the eternal punishment for our sins does not mean that now we can take sin lightly. Actually, the totally opposite should happen. We should recognize that Jesus died to free us from sin so that we would be free from it now and forever. And so we shouldn't make ourselves slaves again to the very thing die, uh, Jesus died to free us from. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When, when Jesus bore our sin on the cross, when he suffered for it, when he put it to death in his own death, he eternally freed us from sin, from the shame of our sin, and from the weight and reality of its eternal consequences. And now Jesus wants us to kill the sin in our earthly lives whenever we see it. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to give us power to to flee temptation now and to put our sinful habits to death, which we all have. And God has done all of this for us because he wants us to be holy like he is holy. As individuals, as families, and as a church. He wants us to be holy like he is holy. And to learn what it means to be holy like God is holy, we have to read the word that God has given to us And if we turn our lives and our souls over to Jesus, if we trust in Jesus for his forgiveness, for his eternal life, then we no longer have to fear that God will condemn us because we are unholy. He will condemn everyone who is unholy. He will. That's why we need Jesus, because he makes us holy, right? Jesus has given everyone who believes in him his own holiness. This is why the cross matters, you guys. He took away our sin and he gave us the holiness of God. Wow. So when we believe that Jesus has already done this for us, that he's already justified us, which means he already declared us not guilty in God's sight when we trusted in him. If we believe that Jesus has already made us righteous in the sight of the Lord, that we have a standing right now that is sure and will never change as an adopted, pure, righteous son or daughter of God, then we know now that we can pursue holiness in our lives without fear. Without fear. Because of course we're not gonna be perfect. That holiness word is scary, and it should be. It's God as an adjective. But Jesus wants to chase after his holiness. He wants us to chase after his perfection. And he wants us to trust in his grace when we fall short because that's why he went to the cross for us. When God took the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, he made a powerful and crystal clear statement, not only to us about his holiness, but also to Satan and his demons that Jesus has suffered for sin once and for all, that Jesus has put sin to death and his own death, that Jesus rose in power over sin and over death, and that now God is on the move through his Holy Spirit to reclaim everything that is rightfully his. That's great news. We talk about the kingdom of God on earth, growing, multiplying, that's what God is doing. And even though Satan will battle, He will battle against the Lord. He will battle against his people until the day that Jesus returns. That's what's gonna go down. He's gonna fight. God declared through Jesus' death and resurrection that God has already won the war against Satan. That's not even a question. Satan's eternal defeat and future punishment is sure. And this is why the pursuit of holiness for Christians, is a battle. It's not easy. It's a battle against Satan. It's a battle against the impulses of our flesh. It's a battle against the, everything this world says is good, which isn't good, a lot of it, right? And this reality, that that God has won the war and that God can drop whoever he wants to, whenever he wants to, should fill all of God's creation, which you and I are a part of, should fill us with a reverent fear of the Lord. Satan, whom God made, and all the demons that God made, all the angels God made, all the souls of people who have died and are consciously existing right now, spiritually, spiritually, All the souls of people who are alive on earth right now, all animals, all mountains, all trees, all created things should fear the Lord, okay? We should tremble at the Lord's power. We should be amazed by his glory. We should kneel our hearts before him right now and ask him to have mercy on us and to save us with Jesus' blood. It will, there's an urgency to this message. We have to know that. Because there's a day coming when it's gonna be too late. And the trick is we don't know when that day is. Either we don't know the day of our death or the day when Jesus returns. And so there's an urgency to this message because it will be too late to ask for mercy when Jesus returns to earth in all of his heavenly glory. Today is the day of salvation. Today God offers to save you. Trust in the Lord today and be saved. So, what else does God want to teach us from this passage? Well, I've got four more applications for us. First of all, don't make light of the sins in your life. This applies to all of us. Don't make light of the sins in your life. I remember I was in college. First freshman year of college, and I was part of this uh, a great college ministry, and we were kind of um, paired up with a mentor or men- different mentors. And I just remember it was hard for me because, you know, I was trying to figure out what does this mean, you know, to be a Christian? How do I live this out in college? And I just remember one of the guys I went over to his house, and he just had some really bad movies that he was watching. And I just I just wrestled with that because I was like, he's supposed to be my mentor and I'm struggling with this and and I get that there's, you know, room for, you know, non-essentials or whatever and things we talk about but I just, I just said, so how do you, how do you, I mean, just how do you personally justify like being, you know, in, uh, saturated with this kind of stuff and then also living for Jesus and I just remember the comment that he said to me which has stuck, I remember, you know, 18 years later, which was uh, I'm not easily offended by sin. And I didn't really think about that. I didn't, I just like, oh, okay. He's not offended by sin. I guess that makes it more godly. Like it was, it sounded like that. It sounded like I'm not easily offended. Oh, okay. And I just think that that is an example of having a low view of sin and taking sin lightly in our lives and saying, ah, the holiness of God doesn't really matter. <laughs> when that, if you read your Bible, it totally matters and your eternity uh, is based on it, and that's the reason you're saved is because Jesus saw your need to be holy and he made you holy. Um, Ananias and Sapphira did not take their sin seriously, they, they didn't take the consequences of their sin seriously. They, they just thought to themselves, well, we're just keeping it back a little bit for ourselves. It's not like anybody's ever going to know it. <clears throat> but as we see it, man, this story really is tragic. It's a, it's a sad story. I mean, I was trying to visualize this. What a sad scene it must have been in that little house they were to see Sapphira drop dead on the ground after her, the last words out of her mouth were lies about her own deceitfulness. But when we follow sin and Satan's temptations, we should expect the same results. (laughs) To have our lives destroyed and to die. This is the message from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. (laughs) You know, read the first 10 chapters of Proverbs. Where does the voice of the whisperer lead you to? The grave to die. It, sound, it promises you big things, but it leads you to the grave. Some people read about Ananias and Sapphira and ask, well, wasn't God a little too hard on them? Um, this, almost sounds, this does sound like a story you would read in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Um, why, did he, why did God kill them? This, keep in mind, this comes off the heels of Jesus talking about forgiveness. Why, did, why didn't he just forgive them? Well, we have to remember this, that God is not obligated to forgive anybody. And he's not obligated to give any of us another second of life. He's not obligated to be patient with any of us when we sin against him and his people. If we think he's, he's obligated to do that, we're living in this delusional false entitlement that we think we're God. It's not reality, we're creatures. We're, he is God who created us. So really, <clears throat> And he's not just a God, he's holy, right? That's what we see in this passage. So instead of asking God, uh, or asking the question whether God was too hard on Ananias and Sapphira, a better question to ask is, why would such a holy God allow any sinful people to keep living? (laughs) How could God forgive anybody for their sins? Why in the world would God love us so much that he would actually put himself on the cross to take away our sins? That is a much more puzzling question. But everything that God does is holy, it's righteous, and it's good because that is what he is. The fact that he shows mercy and grace to anybody, Christians and non-Christians, is astounding. Um, I do recommend this book, The Holiness of God, by R.C. Sproul. The Holiness of God. I would actually put that as probably in your top 10 in my list of books that a Christian should read if he's able to or she's able to in their life. The holiness of God because it really helps us understand passages like this. And so what does this mean for us? Well, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us be vigilant not to test the Lord and not to test his patience by making light of our own sin or by just Flagrantly doing what he tells us not to do, or or by doing those things which or by not doing the things he tells us you should do this, right? Instead, let's do what Ananias and Sapphira did not do. Let's bring our sins to light. Let's confess them to God and to one another so that they don't have power over us anymore. Let's repent from our sin. As we turn to Jesus, as we trust in his righteousness and his forgiveness and his power to equip us to pursue holiness in our lives. And obviously, I think there's there's a, you know, I think about the New Testament, it talks about confessing your sins to one another. There is a, a way which we don't fully understand in which our own holiness, our own sins, profoundly affects our church family. And I think this is where we're talking, we have to see that we are not just individual Christians, we are a church family and we wanna be a holy church, not just holy individuals. And so confessing sin to God, confessing sins to one another is a means of grace God has given us to purify us individually and as a church. And that purification ultimately reflects his glory and his holiness among ourselves and to the world in ways that it probably wouldn't had, did we not take time to acknowledge, confess, and repent from our sin. Okay, second, uh, we must guard against Satan's attacks from within the church. The greatest dangers to the church don't come from outside its members, but from inside its members. And so we just gotta be on alert to that Uh, We must always be on alert to Satan's attacks on our church, on our leaders, on our unity, our love, our doctrine. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to deceive, to divide, to conquer. And so that means that we gotta be on alert, right? It doesn't mean we have to be freaked out and we have to be paranoid. That's not what we're talking about. But it does mean don't be dumb. Be sober, don't be thoughtless, don't be careless, Don't be ignorant of the fact that Satan wants to take you and me and our church down, right? We must stay alert to our own words and actions and attitudes as a church family, and we wanna be very careful that Satan does not use us or those close to us to attempt to deceive, divide, and conquer this church, this family. Third, uh, when you give to the Lord, do it to worship him, and not to be worshipped. Give to the Lord to worship him, not to be worshipped. We, we have to be very careful about our motives when we give to the Lord in his church. And, and thankfully, the Lord does give us many instructions in the Bible about how to give with right motives. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be acknowledged as big givers. They wanted to be acknowledged as generous givers. And instead of worshipping God, they wanted to be worshipped by other people. And we can very easily fall prey to the same temptation. When we give to the Lord, we want to be careful to obey Jesus by not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Uh, Give to the Lord cheerfully and sacrificially and honestly because you love Him and because you want to love others with what God's given you. And then, fourth, Praise Jesus for being the perfect offering for us. Praise Jesus for being the perfect offering for us. Nobody forced Jesus to leave heaven. Nobody forced him to come to earth to offer his life for us. He came and offered himself for us willfully because he wanted to save us and he wanted to honor God's name. And unlike Ananias and Sapphira and all of us, Jesus did not give in to any of Satan's temptations during his life on earth. Jesus never mocked God with sin. Instead, Jesus remained pure and perfect. And When he offered his body to be hung on the cross, he was a perfect and pleasing offering to God. He did not offer himself partially. He did not offer himself falsely. He offered himself body and soul truly and entirely. Jesus was and is and forever will be the perfect, holy Lamb of God, the only offering that can remove our sins and totally please the Father for us. He is the only offering that can truly pay our eternal debts and assure us of right standing with God and assure us of eternity with Him. So may our our hearts be filled with thankfulness to this holy God, this holy God, Jesus, may, may we confess our sins, turn from our sins, and daily turn to Jesus in faith, and, and may we offer our lives to him to be used to love one another, and to love him, and, and to love non-Christians, and to tell this world that they too can know this God of holiness and love through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, which reminds us of your holiness, your awesomeness, God, and your grace—really, your goodness. Um, we cannot point the finger at Ananias and say it's fire and say, "Oh man, I'm so much better than them." No, we see ourselves in them. We see that that's what we deserve. Um, but we thank you, God, for your long suffering, for your patience uh, with us. We thank you for your promise. Uh, of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us to uh, spirit in us to to uh, give us power to resist temptation and to pursue holiness, we thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ you've put in our church here with whom we can do life and be real and sharpen one another and confess sin and repent together and trust in you and give together and serve together and be on mission together and Please forgive us, God. Just forgive us, please, for our sins. Purify us, God. Thank you for the the cross of Christ, which purifies us. Thank you for that, God. And I, God, I just pray for those here, those in our neighborhood, those in our family who uh, who are not holy in your sight, who do not have right standing with God, who are not in right relationship with God, who who do not have any assurance at all of of being with you for eternity and whose sin and shame rests on their head, I pray, Spirit, that you would break in into their hearts, give them faith to believe this great news of God, reclaim many lives for your glory and for our joy, Jesus, and help us to be on mission with you. Help us to be part of that. Help us to be part of spreading your holiness and your love and this great news of Grace and love in Jesus Christ. And we pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.